Hello and welcome to Beyond Boundaries. I'm Justin Douglas. So happy you can join me for this episode of Beyond Boundaries. Please consider checking out the Patreon page and supporting the Beyond Boundaries podcast if you're able. That's patreon.com forward slash Beyond Boundaries podcast. You can also help by sharing, subscribing, rating, and reviewing the podcast. It makes a huge difference. Hope you enjoy this episode of Beyond Boundaries. Today on the podcast, I welcome Mark Charles. Mark Charles is an activist, an author, and a pastor, a former pastor, and he is an independent candidate for the president of the United States in the 2020 United States presidential election. Yes, it is an interesting conversation of history, faith, and uh, we get into all kinds of political conversations as well. Uh, Mark has a very unique perspective. If you are coming to this and you are a Republican, uh, you're going to be challenged by his perspective. And if you're coming to this and you're a Democrat, you're going to be challenged by his perspective. He's, uh, he, he takes equal opportunity to critique both sides. And I think uh, that's what makes him a very unique candidate. So here it is, my conversation with Mark Charles. I'm here with presidential candidate Mark Charles. And we're going to have a conversation here on Beyond Boundaries. Thanks for joining me, Mark. Yate, Justin, thank you very much. Uh, if I could, I'd like to just introduce myself traditionally. Yes. So Yate, Mark Charles Yenish, yeah. Sinbake Dinet Inishlin, the Tohiguni Bashis Chin, Sinbake Dinet Dashiche, the Tolichini Dashinella. In our Navajo culture, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans. We're matrilineal as a people with our identities come from our mother's mother. My mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage, and so that's why I say Sinbake Dene. Loosely translated, that means I'm from the wooden shoe people. My second clan, my father's mother, is Tohiglini, which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father, is also Sinbake Dene. And then my fourth clan, my father's father, is Tolichitni, and that's the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans or Navajo people. I also just want to acknowledge I'm speaking to you today from my home in Washington, D.C., where I live with my family, and these are the land of the Piscataway. The Piscataway are the nation that they've, they've lived here, they've hunted here, they've fished here, they've raised their family here, they've buried their dead here, they've been here for hundreds, even thousands of years. They're the host people of these lands. They were here long before Columbus got lost at sea, and they are still here today. I am very humbled and honored to be living on the land of the Piscataway, and I want to thank them for their stewardship of these lands for these hundreds or even thousands of years. Thank you so much, Mark, for that introduction to, to you. And I think even that introduction alone shows how you are a different candidate and a different, even as I've, as I've come to know you from afar, uh, listening to various podcasts you've been on or various sermons that you've, that you've done. Uh, you are a former pastor. I don't know if you would, I always say once a pastor, always a pastor. I don't know if you consider that to be true, but, um, but I've, I've technically in the CRC, I had my license to exhort. So, oh, um, so you were in yeah. the CRC. I was in the CRC. I actually do some consulting with Kelvin um, to wow. this day. So, yeah, but I, I was I was a licensed exhorter and um, potato, potato. I'm not sure the difference between <laughs> exhorting and preaching, but That's yes, I, in practice, I pastored a church in Denver called the Christian Indian Center. That's amazing. I, I had my license to exhort in the Christian Reformed Church as well. So <laughs> we, we, we have that in common. And what I, what I go ahead. That's great. I, I I haven't met many other licensed exhorters outside of where <laughs> I've been, where I where I was uh, practicing. So it's great to meet you and yeah, have that connection. Yeah. So um, 
So, okay. So one of the things I've appreciated about you is you are a very unique person, like remove candidate from the, like you have a unique experience as an American, but, but also just the intersection of, of, of being a pastor. So having some faith tradition. Um, and also when I hear you talk about, um, theology, but even church history, you have a really good grasp on church history. Uh, can I just start by asking like what formed your interest in either the church or church history or history in general, as you were growing up and, and kind of coming to understand America's roots and also maybe even the church's roots? Yeah, I would say most of that formed as I, it was really after I moved to uh, the Navajo Nation. You know, I, I didn't go to, I, I went to a, a Christian Reformed public school, our private school. It used to be a, a boarding school in the Southwest known as Rehoboth Christian School. Um, I was there as it was transitioning from being a boarding school to a day school. So I was there as a day school student. And um, I really had, I was interested in getting outside of the Christian bubble. You know, I, I was raised Christian. I, I was a Christian. I, I, you know, I had my faith, but I didn't like just being in a Christian bubble. So I, I went to school at UCLA in Los Angeles. And actually, my faith grew tremendously there. Um, it was really a good move for me to be outside of kind of the Christian bubble and have to own my faith and understand what do I believe and why do I believe it. Um, but it really wasn't until it was when I was pastoring the church, which was in the early 2000s in Denver, Colorado, the Christian Indian Center. And we began asking the question, my first Sunday at the church, when I met with the council, uh, they said that their last pastor had introduced them to the idea of contextualizing worship. Mm. And they wanted me to lead them into that process. And I said, sure. Like, how do you spell it? Like, I didn't even know what they were talking <laughs> about. And they said, well, there's this group of, of, of Christian leaders from globally all over the world. And they gather every year. They're called the World Christian Gathering on Indigenous Peoples. And we would like you to connect with this group and learn some of their faith story, listen to, hear their teachings and help us discern what does it mean to be indigenous, to be native and be Christian. And so I began meeting with this group, um, spent probably seven, almost a decade of meeting with this group, even after I, I was no longer the pastor of the church and building relationships and being on a journey of faith with other indigenous peoples from around the world and most indigenous peoples globally have the experience of what I call being colonized by the gospel, mm. where a, a colonial nation comes in, a quote unquote Christian empire nation comes in and they, they convert the natives to their faith tradition. And in the conversion process, they forcibly assimilate them to Western European Christian culture. And there's been a renaissance uh, per se, if you will, globally of these indigenous Christians asking, what does it mean to be native and be Christian, to be of my tribe and to use the teachings of our people and to use our own regalia and our understanding of what's sacred to yet still follow and worship Jesus, but to practice our faith contextually. And that put me on a journey of really beginning to understand my faith as well as look at the history of the church of why is the church so colonial? Why is the church so adamant about um, not only talking about who the church loves, talking about Jesus, but so adamant in spreading their own culture? 
Yeah. Um, and so that is what led into me eventually moving back to the Navajo Nation with my family and living there, experiencing the marginalization and some of the, the after effects of some of the, the very abusive and, and dehumanizing oppression that the U.S. did against Native peoples. Um, and then really, that's where I began wrestling with the doctrine of discovery. And what is the doctrine of discovery and how has it been embedded into both the church and the nation? And it was in trying to understand that at the same time, trying to reconcile it with my own faith. That is what led me to look more closely at church history, as well as, you know, eventually led to the writing of the book that myself and my, my good friend, uh, Sung Chan Ra, we published last November. 2019 is titled Unsettling Truth, the Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery, where we go into the history of the church as well as the history of the nation and how it, this doctrine has really um, kind of centered itself in the foundations of both these institutions and has led to some horrible injustices and some incredibly dehumanizing um, uh, experiences. Yeah, what I appreciate about the book and, and the the reference to our history is that for so many of us, I think we have this understanding that the church hasn't always done all it probably should have or spoke up when it should have spoke up, but like that wasn't the church doing it. That was the society doing it. And yeah, the church missed opportunities to speak up. I think for many Christians, that would kind of be the way they would frame most of the injustices in our world. I think as you study church history, you begin to really see, whoa, the church was actually the active participant on far more occasions than we've, we would care to actually be taught about our history. And, um, and I I thought it was interesting that you traced it all the way back to St. Augustine and, um, and like just war theory uh, being, being, being interested. Cause I just think that's actually an interesting time for the church because up to that point, um, peace was such a center uh you know focus for the gospel to be a christian was to be nonviolent up to that point at least from all of the writings that we have from the season leading yeah. up to uh the marriage of you know uh, constantine and, and rome and the connection with the church and 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 in essence it being a state sanctioned religion now um and then we have where we have today where there's no question from a christian whether or not they should support a military like it's very rare i'm not going to say no because there's certainly traditions of which i find myself in that are that are um you know the anabaptist tradition for example which is more of a of a peace tradition a nonviolent tradition and emphasize those words of jesus but we've learned and we've been i think conditioned in a lot of ways to de-emphasize the peaceful teachings of jesus at least their importance because it doesn't it does not harmonize with the way uh our world is and the way we're taught to value things so and then that that leads into the doctrine of discovery papal bulls and go that can you give just a brief overview if anyone's interested in reading that book like that kind of like domino effect that you lay out uh, i think is very- yeah yeah there's several very key turning points in that and first the first four chapters of our book and i've actually spoken on this there's several youtube videos of me online um where i talk about this but really looking at the journey of how did the church get from the teaching of jesus who said love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you to a doctrine of discovery that literally said kill people and enslave those who don't look act worship or behave like you and how do we get there and one of the very crucial turning points well first we have to understand jesus 
and that he was adamant he was not here to establish a worldly Christian empire. He repeatedly said his empire was from somewhere else. He, you know, he walked away when the people tried to make him king, when, when the devil offered him the kingdoms of the world, Jesus walked away. You know, he, he's like, I'm not here to establish a Christian empire. He was here to make disciples, to plant a church, ultimately to offer his body as a sacrifice. And there's a very key interaction where he has with, uh, with St. Peter in the middle of the book of Mark, where they're up on this place and he's asking them, who do people th think I am? And Peter says, well, some think, you know, the disciples say, well, some think you're John the Baptist, others think you're Elijah, others think you're the Old, Pro Old Testament prophets. So well, who do you think I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus then tells them that the Messiah, the Son of Man, must suffer and die. And this is so contrary to what Peter thinks of the Messiah, right? They're waiting for someone to come and throw off the Roman oppressors and restore the greatness of the kingdom of David from the Old Testament. This is what they're looking for. Even John the Baptist is looking for that. And so when, when Jesus says, yes, I'm the Messiah, but I'm here to be persecuted and even crucified, Peter's like, no, 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 that's not what my, not, not what my Messiah does. And, you know, it, it hinges on this understanding. So in the Old Testament, the people of Israel had a land covenant with the God of Abraham. And based on their land covenant, when they obeyed God, they prospered. When they disobeyed God, they were exiled and they suffered. So their prosperity was one of their barometers of their relationship with God, not the only barometer, but it was if they were yeah. prospering, they could feel fairly confident that God was with them and they were doing well in their obedience and so on and so forth. Well, when Jesus came and began teaching, and even in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are you, not when you prosper, but when people persecute you. He's giving his disciples a new barometer, and they didn't like that barometer. And when Jesus said, this is the barometer for the Messiah, Peter's like, no, that's not. And it really wasn't until Pentecost that the disciples finally understood this barometer, and then most of them ended up dying a martyr's death. Mm. And so that barometer, that understanding of our relationship with God is marked, not by our prosperity, but by our persecution. Um, that's where... I would actually trace it back to the writings of Eusebius mm. in, his, in his writings in the fourth century, um, who was the influencer on Constantine. He fed him the heresy of Christian empire. Um, and then it was Constantine who went on to Christianize Rome. But Eusebius, when the great persecution in the fourth century touched him, and, you know, he, he records this in, in his writings that there was the great persecution. He saw family and friends, people he knew die in this persecution. And prior to that, in his writings on, on ecclesiastical history, he, um, he actually holds up the martyrs. And then after the great persecution, he begins to look for how can we stop this persecution? And so once the persecution touches him, he kind of loses this, this vision of persecution is good. And he start thinking, how can we go back to another barometer and one of prosperity yeah. instead of yeah. suffering? And that's what Constantine buys into. And his, his whole second book, which is The Life of the Blessed Constantine, is just flat out heresy. And then, so it's Augustine, who is the, really the first theologian 
after Christendom is born, who's left to wrestle with what do we do with this heresy known as Christian empire? Yeah. Um, and, and he asks the question, you know, he writes just war theory. He, he writes about the two kingdoms, but where he really, I would say where he crosses the line is when in his book on the correction of the Donatists, where he, he is asking the question, what is the role of a Christian king in a Christian empire? Because they've never had this before, right? They've always had a, a secular king or even a pagan king mm-hmm. in a secular empire. And this is the first time Christians not only have the right to be represented, but even be king. Like there's a Christian king. And so the question itself isn't bad. It's not a bad question. The premise of the question is horrible because he accepts the premise of Christian empire. Yeah. which according to Jesus doesn't exist. So the problem is there is no Christian empire. If you want to ask the question of what's the role of a Christian king in a secular empire, that's a good question. Yep. But to, to take the premise of a Christian empire, now you're accepting the heresy. And so his conclusion is his role is to, is to compel people through fear, punishment, and pain to obey the teachings of the church, which of course is clearly off the teachings of Jesus. And then that leads into to people like um, Aquinas, who, who says, well, if the secular authority has the right to kill people who, who break man's laws, how much more right does the church have to kill people who break God's laws? And this is what starts this downhill, downhill spiral of the church just becoming more and more holding on to its power and, and therefore trying to control things that it really has no business trying to control. Um, there's actually a teaching that I don't have time to go into right now, but there's teachings I've done online about the, the biblical dynamics of power and authority. Mm. And what's the difference between acting out of power, which is the ability to act, as compared to acting out of authority, which is the right of jurisdiction. Hmm. And if you look at the scriptures, Jesus did a bunch of powerful things, but they're almost all recorded as authority. Right? When, he, when he went into the, the, the synagogue and he taught, people were amazed because he taught as one who had authority. Yeah. When he cast out the spirit, they were amazed because he spoke with authority. When he was in the, in the boat with his disciples and the squall came up and the disciples were afraid they were going to die, Jesus stood up and he spoke to the winds and the waves with authority and they listened to him. And that's when the disciples freaked out and like, who is this? Like, we've never seen anything like this before. So most of what Jesus did was not demonstrating his power. It was exercising his authority. Mm. And when Christendom came in in the fourth century, now it went from authority back to power. Yeah. And now the church is having to hold on to its power. And that's where I would argue, and this is what we argue in the book, of once the church began to operate out of power instead of out of authority, now this is where it has to become oppressive and abusive and even dehumanizing because it needs to, to use power to control people. Mm. That's really good. I think, I think what it reveals is that this isn't something that's new in the church. This is something that's been pretty consistent. It's not even something that's new, like as, um, as the American church, this has been happening in the church's lineage way back. Um, yeah. And, and we really need to consider how we maintain the church moving forward without being so in love with power. 
because I think the American church, especially, and this is just me speaking as a pastor and someone who has, who has a, a pretty significant understanding of at least white evangelical culture. Um, there is a love of power and a connection yeah. to that power being almost as if it's a blessing from God to have, or it's, Oh, God, absolutely. God, it's God given it's, you know, um, it, it, we, we, we really struck, we, we explain away the sermon on the Mount is what we really do. We explain oh, absolutely. Um, and we love images of Jesus in revelation, uh, which is, you know, um, you know, a, a unique book of its own kind, but we, we, so that synthesizes so much more with our view of God, um, that, you know, a warrior of sorts, right. But we really struggle yeah. to consider the life ministry and teachings of Jesus in the way in which we hold power and privilege. And, yeah. and I think humility is the word I keep coming back to. If we could just find an ounce of humility to import to this conversation and some amount of like openness to a different way, I wonder yeah. if the church could correct course in some regard. I mean, I still have hope, but I'm also kind of at the same time, like, I, I know also that the power brokers within the church at large um, aren't always open to new ideas uh, and new perspectives. Yeah. And, and this is where I would say what's so helpful is when I look at that, because I have no intention of playing the judge or the jury of who's a Christian, who's not a Christian, who has real faith, who doesn't have real faith. But when I look at that, I mean, when you look, especially at the Old Testament, or at the New Testament, I'm sorry. So even John the Baptist, right? He was expecting an imperial Messiah. Yep. And when he was in prison and he heard that Jesus was healing the servants of centurions and the, the children of widows, this confused him because this was not the imperial picture he had of his Messiah. So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, hey, are you the one we're looking for or do we wait for someone else? And I love Jesus' response. He turns around, he heals more sick people. He casts out more demons. He gives sight to more of the blind, hearing to more of the deaf. And he turns around and he says to John's disciples, go back and tell your teacher what you have seen. And blessed is the man who doesn't stumble on my account. Mm. So Jesus essentially rebukes John the Baptist. I'm not here to be imperial. You know, at one point the, the disciples come to him and they say, hey, teacher, we saw um, someone casting out demons in your name, but because they weren't one of us, we told them to stop. They were kind of proud of themselves. And Jesus said, don't tell them to stop. Whoever gives you a cup of water in my name is not going to lose their reward. But then he goes on. He says, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it'd be better if they tied a millstone around their neck and jumped into the ocean. But if your eye causes you to believe you're better than someone else, gouge it out. It's better to go into, into life blind than with two eyes to be thrown into the pit of hell. Mm -hmm. if, if your hand causes you to think about someone else, cut it off. It's better to go into life maimed than with two hands to be thrown into hell. Jesus saves his harshest warnings, his most severe threats, not for the people who they thought were sinners, not for um, the, the teachers of the law who were leading people astray, not even for the Roman oppressors who were, who were hurting and even killing their people. His strongest threats were to his disciples when they began to think that because they were with Jesus, they were somehow better than other people. 
Wow. Yeah. And so this is where the church today, I would argue, because it has become obsessed with power, we, and it has learned, has found that power within politics, within empire. Yeah. Going all the way back to Constantine, which is how Eusebius ended the persecution of the church. Now, the, the church, I would argue, is no longer a prophet. The church no longer speaks truth to power. The church has become either a lobbyist or a protester, right? So it lobbies the people they agree with, and it protests the people they disagree with. But the church doesn't speak truth to power across the board. Yeah. And so, you know, living here in D.C., you see one group of Christians, mostly those from the activist left-leaning church. They were the ones who were all in town for meeting at the White House when Obama was in office. And then it was all the evangelicals who were here protesting during that, those, those years. Mm-hmm. And then when Trump came into office, now all the evangelicals are here to meet with people at the White House, and all the other people are protesting in the streets. <laughs> right? No one's being prophetic. Yeah. No one's actually speaking truth to power. They are just lobbying and protesting whoever happens to be in office at the time. And this is where the church loses its witness. This is where the world looks and says, yeah, the church is merely a political pawn. Wow. The church is not interested in, in trying to change the system or speaking truth to power. It's merely trying to hold on to its own power mm. and its own place within the system. That is so good. I, I would love to spend a lot more time on that. You've talked about that a lot. So I encourage people to, to YouTube you and maybe I'll even throw some links into the show notes um, on, on some more of that. So I asked people to ask you questions about your candidacy because I think it's interesting as you even just mentioned. So if I was to say, well, Mark, you just said to not be interested in power. So why would you become a politician? politicians are corrupt and dirty people. They're awful. They're terrible. And all they care about is power. Um, how did you come to the decision to run for president and to, uh, to, to, to become a politician and to throw your hat in that ring? And do you see any conflict within your faith of, of running for office? And, um, and yeah. you know, yeah, that I would just love to hear about that. Cause I know a lot of people will place their Christianity at the forefront of their candidacy, right? I think we've seen that with yeah. uh, mm-hmm. even the two current candidates have done that um, and candidates in the past. And um, some people that will be in the background, I'm just curious for you how your faith has informed even your presidential can- candidacy. Yeah. So one of the things I, I repeat frequently is that, yes, I'm a Christian. I was raised in a Christian family. I pastored a church. I, I ha- my faith is a deep part of who I am but I'm not the Christian candidate and I'm not here to legislate my faith. I'm not here to try and take the the theologies I believe in and the the faith that I have and somehow legislate that for my nation. The United States of America is not, never has been, nor will it ever be Christian. And my job isn't to make it Christian. Now, can I help my nation be more moral? Yes. Can I help my nation be more just? Yes. But I'm not here to legislate my theologies. And I actually, because of my life experience and my, my, even the history of my people on my father's side, my Navajo people, 
I've seen the horrors of what happens when a nation tries to legislate faith, right? This is going back to Augustine, when if he believes the role of the Christian king and the Christian empire is to compel people through fear, punishment, and pain to obey the teachings of the church, and if Aquinas believes that the church has the right to kill people who don't keep the church's teachings, this is what happens when you legislate faith. This is what Jesus, why Jesus was warning his disciples, don't start thinking that way. It's a horrible road to go down. Yeah. And you will, you, will, you will not only destroy your witness, but you'll destroy your own life and your own faith. And so what I'm trying to do is I would argue, I'm trying to, to how do I help my nation be more just? Mm. How do I help my nation um, have a, a, a better moral compass? I'm not legislating my faith. And so even just a few weeks ago, um, you know, uh, Joe Biden was talking about America's racism and its past, and he, he called slavery America's original sin. Mm. And I actually publicly disagreed with that because sin is a theological understanding based on a, on a specific faith tradition. Yeah. Um, it's morals are more commonly accepted patterns of behavior. Justice can be argued outside of a theological space, but sin is defined theologically based on a specific faith tradition. So when he's trying to hold our nation accountable for its sin of slavery, it's asking people who may or may not adhere to that faith tradition to respond to that theological argument. Mm, and yeah. so I would say, yes, we, we, slavery was obviously wrong, and it was a huge injustice, and we have to argue about it as an injustice, not as a sin, because I am not going to go down the road of forcing people to adhere to my theologies. Yeah. And so a lot of it, what, it, what, it, what it, I end up doing with my arguments, and you know, this is just coming from even from a Native background, where even on our reservation, where the church has done so much damage through boarding schools and, and through all the history, that you have really three groups of people um, in the church. You have the people who were, who were exposed to Christianity, like my grandparents, and they converted to Christianity, and as a result, they gave up their culture. Right. So my parent, my wow. grandparents were boarding school survivors and they gave up their culture so that they might have Christ. Then you have other people who went to the boarding school, were exposed to that, but they were they were abused in the boarding school and they were hurt in the boarding school and they came out and want nothing to do with it. And then you have the people who have no exposure to the boarding school and they're following more of the traditional path and traditional religion. And so especially for the group that was that was hurt by the boarding school not just hurt minorly but like raped yeah by priests you know raped and and abused and neglected and now to go back to them and say well that wasn't really jesus this is you know like you, so yeah. you end up you have to learn if you want to have a witness on the reservation especially to some of those communities and if you understand the historical trauma and the PTSD and the complex PTSD they're dealing with, you have to learn how to talk about your faith without talking about your faith, mm -hmm. you know, and have to, how to frame things so they don't trigger these horrible experiences. And so the, the problem, so what I tell myself is if, if I'm debating or thinking about or having discourse on some sort of law, some sort of policy, 
And my only argument for why we should have this law or why we should have this policy is because of my faith or my theology, then I probably shouldn't be arguing for that. Hmm. If I can't find some other way to motivate or persuade or even argue for a, a certain thing I think our nation should do that is not only tied to my faith tradition, then I probably shouldn't be trying to legislate it. There may be other things I can do to persuade or influence, but I shouldn't be trying to legislate it. And so I really think through all of the stances that I have and how can I, can I argue these things without invoking my faith? Not that I don't have faith or I'm faithless, but if I can't, because we have a very pluralistic world mm -hmm. and that's not a bad thing. There's great diversity and there's, there's real beauty in that diversity. And so, and so that's one of the things I'm, I work very hard on in my, in my work is I want to make my nation more just. Yeah. I want my nation to, to have a better moral compass, but I am adamant. I am not going to legislate my faith and I'm not going to impose on people what were imposed onto my ancestors mm. um, and what happened to them, not only in the boarding schools, but literally in the ethnic cleansing and the genocide of how this nation as this nation completed its manifest destiny. And so it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's that my faith is personal and I don't talk about it, but it's that I'm not trying to proselytize sure. my nation through, because again, the nation will never be Christian. Yeah. The goal isn't to make your nation Christian. That's not, that was never the goal of the church. And so understanding that it actually gives me a lot more freedom of what are the things I advocate for in the public space? What are the things I advocate for from the pulpit? And what are the things I advocate for in my own life? Yeah, that's, that's, I, I really think that's important right now. Being, <laughs> to my knowledge, the, the, the candidate that's a, that has a pastoral background <laughs> of the, of the, you know, at least of the candidates here. Like one of the things I think is interesting about that Biden comment about it being sin is also the American church's response to sin is just repent and then move forward. And like, and there's usually not a reconciling part to our process for sin. Now, not that there aren't certain um, traditions within the church that, that do seek to, to contemplate their past and the damage they've done and how they can, um, how they can consider, you know, ways to, for restorative justice amid the things that have been broken. I'm just saying when you even call it sin, even in the theological framework of the American church at large, there's usually a say a prayer and move forward and not acknowledge the privilege, the, the way in which the system is benefiting you now. Um, but instead just be like, that wasn't me that did that. I apologize for what my ancestors did, but now we just got to move forward. And I've heard so many people when I bring up conversations about racism in our country that that's kind of their posture and they're almost theologizing it in like God has grace yeah. for us. We just need to move forward now. And that's another problem. And actually, this, this is what it is. If I can, let me go into go this a little bit. Yeah, so yeah. when you, when you look at Eusebius, when he's creating this heresy known as Christian empire, and he's writing his book, Ecclesiastical History, which is this volume of 11 books. And he introduces the heresy of Christian empire um, in books eight around book seven, book eight, he, he, he's inserting it in. And between books eight and nine, he inserts a book called um, 
they're all numbered, but then between eight and nine, he has a book called The Book of the Martyrs, which is really about the great persecution. Um, and it's there where he, he again, decides, okay, this, this barometer of persecution is no good. I want to go back to the barometer of prosperity. And he begins to hold up Constantine as a God-ordained emperor mm. and kind of frame his, his role in the empire as this God-ordained emperor and he can have this power and so on and so forth. Now, this is clearly heresy. And it clearly has nothing to do with the teachings of Jesus because Jesus was adamant. He did not here come to create a Christian empire. He actually warned his disciples about that. And yet Eusebius is openly advocating for it. And, and um, when you get to the end of the, of the last chapter of the last book in ecclesiastical history, right? So you would think if you're writing a book called Ecclesiastical History, History of the Church, mm-hmm. your book would not have a conclusion, right? Because this will conclude when the bridegroom returns, yeah. when the, 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 the groom returns. And because you're writing the book, it's clear that hasn't happened yet. So you would think the book would, would just be the, the, the preface. Yeah. You would understand that. But if you read to the last chapter of the last book of Ecclesiastical History, you will find that Eusebius absolutely has a conclusion. And his conclusion is the history, or is the, is, the, his conclusion is the salvation that comes to Rome, not through Christ, but through Constantine. Mm. See, if you want to have Christian empire and the center of your church is opposed to it, the first thing you have to do if you really want to establish this heresy is you have to write Christ out of ecclesiastical history. Wow which is what Eusebius does in his book, Ecclesiastical History. And then his second book, The Life of the Blessed Constantine, again, is flat out heresy. Yeah. Just no regard at all. And so, so this is where today, right, if you go to the church and you say to the church, I murdered someone, I stole from someone, I did something I shouldn't have done, the church will say, you know what, there's this guy, Jesus, he can help you, he, he can, you know, if you confess your, your need for him and confess your sin. He can save you and blah, blah, blah. But if you go to the church and you say, I want to deal with the corporate, systemic, generational sin of white supremacy, of slavery, of ethnic cleansing and genocide, the church doesn't know what to do with you, right? Maybe they'll wash your feet in some ceremony. Maybe they'll, they'll, they don't know what to do. Why? Because the church has literally written Christ out of its corporate sense of ecclesiastical history. And instead of having Christ there, it now has Constantine. Wow. And, even, and, yeah. and I would argue in the U.S., we, we replaced Constantine with Abraham Lincoln. And even though Abraham Lincoln was actually assassinated on Good Friday, his blood doesn't do squat for you. Yeah. And so... And so the, um, so the church has no theological space to deal with systemic, corporate, multi-generational sin. Hmm. There's no space to deal with it. It can only justify itself. Yeah. Because to deal with it is to undercut most of our systems and, and, and our structures and the foundation in which we've built everything. Like we would, 
it it is it is so unsettling to be foundationless <laughs> like as a person yeah. and as an entity and i think what leaders within the church recognize whether it's conscious or unconsciously recognizes that wow what you're bringing up is so incredibly um a part of our foundation that people will leave the church money will go elsewhere like we will we like just there's there's too much risk and not enough um models for how that looks in the church you know what i mean to even go that direction to even have that i mean i think churches are beginning to have more open conversations about race now but at the same time i don't think there's an an understanding of exactly how how to reconcile or i like how you even said reconcile it would be i think you had said a a, a truth and conciliation uh conciliation, yeah. yeah because like the, not, there's nothing to reconcile because these were never joined together to begin with um am i getting that right i don't want to i don't want to put words in yeah. your mouth i think you had said something. I, I use that regarding race specific, specifically yeah. yeah um because of the history of race and how it was race was created it's man-made distinction created to oppress and divide so yeah. the notion of racial reconciliation is a misnomer because it was never consiled in the first place. No, that's good. We could talk a lot more about that because I'm a pastor and you're a pastor and <laughs> I, we probably both geek out over theology in these conversations. But I did ask my listeners uh, to to give me some questions. And so here's how I think we'll do this because we only have a few minutes left. Um, how about we do like a two minute? We can go a little bit longer if you want to. We okay. can go a little bit longer if you'd like to. Well, well, let's do a two minute drill at least to the best you can keep each answer to maybe two minutes and we'll hit as many of these as we can. But if you do want to go more, because some of them are a little more complex. Yeah. I want to, I want to make sure to not pigeonhole you in on any of these. Um, here we go. Uh, let's start here. Cause I think this is a valid question for anyone who may actually consider voting for you. Maybe they're like, you know what, I'm going to look up this Mark Charles guy. I'm going to check him out and, and, uh, and see what he's about. Why should we vote third party in an election where so much is at stake for so many people? The reason we need to vote third party is because our nation needs systemic change. We need to change our foundations. We have a Declaration of Independence that refers to natives as savages. We have a constitution that never mentions women, specifically excludes natives, and counts Africans as three-fifths of a person. We've never abolished slavery. The 13th Amendment just redefines and codifies slavery under the jurisdiction of the criminal justice system. We have Supreme Court case precedents going back as uh, 1823, as recently as 2005, referencing the doctrine of discovery, the understanding that natives are savages and are only occupants of the land. Europeans are, I guess, fully human and therefore have the right of discovery to the land. So the land belongs to them. And that's, the, that's the, literally the legal precedent for land titles. I, I have a, 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 a TEDx talk I gave called We the People, the Three Most Misunderstood Words in U.S. History. I go into depth into those Supreme Court cases laying out how they are some of the most white supremacist Supreme Court decisions, even the 2005 one written. And they're bipartisan. The 2005 case, Oneida Indian Nation versus the city of Sheryl, New York, was written by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Why? Because when your land titles are based on a doctrine of discovery, white supremacy becomes a bipartisan value. Mm -hmm. And so we have foundational level changes. And the two-party system was established to maintain the status quo. Hmm. 
The two-party system actually agrees on so many of these systemic issues. They're not interested in changing those things. And so that type of systemic change is only going to come from the margins. It's only going to come from, from people at the edges. And so if, if you want a 250-year rolling trajectory towards freedom, Yes, vote Democrat or Republican. It doesn't really matter. They both get there in about the same time. But if you want to see real change, if you want foundational, systemic level change, even within your lifetime, you're going to have to find a way to vote outside that two-party system because change will never come from the two-party system. Yeah. You know, even even if you look you look back, you have this past week we had Joe Biden who was talking about restoring the soul of America, Donald Trump who's saying we have to make America great again. They both have some notion that our past, our history, our foundations were great. Yeah. They both believe that. Well, the only people who can believe that, the only people who can look back over our past and say, Oh, that was a really good time, are white landowning men. Right. It wasn't good for women who only got the right to vote in the last century. It wasn't great for native peoples who have been in boarding schools and, and, and ethnic cleansing and genocide. It wasn't great for African-Americans who, you know, the, the past has not been good for anyone who's not a white landowning male. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that both parties have put forth a white landowning male from the 1% as their candidate and both of them are holding on to our history with some sense of nostalgia gives you their frame of reference. Yes, Donald Trump's a bit more crass. Joe Biden's a bit more smooth around the edges. But they both are very interested. So even though we're having this huge debate on white supremacy and racism and institutional um, racism, Donald Trump is saying, well, we should probably keep our Confederate monuments where they are. Joe Biden says we should put them in a museum. Donald Trump says maybe we should ban some chokeholds. Joe Biden says, well, maybe we should shoot people in the kneecaps instead of in in the chest. Donald Trump says we need to continue honoring our leaders who owned enslaved people, such as Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. And Joe Biden says, I agree. Donald Trump says, we cannot defund our police and rethink policing. And Joe Biden says, I agree. Neither one of them are interested in systemic change. Yeah. And so if we want that change, if we want to build a nation where we the people is gonna truly mean all the people, we have to vote third party. I just reminded my followers on Twitter last night, after these great speeches, even from people of color, we've heard at the Democratic National Convention this past week, talking about systemic racism and white supremacy and the changes we have to make. I'm still the only candidate who is advocating for a complete abolishment of slavery. Yeah. Joe Biden doesn't think we should do that. Donald Trump doesn't believe we should do that. They can't even agree on reforming the police, let alone actually abolishing slavery, which our 13th Amendment keeps legal in our criminal justice system. If we want to reform criminal justice system, we have to start by taking that clause out of the 13th Amendment. But of course, Joe Biden nor Donald Trump are going to go there. Yeah, I could not agree so, with you more about that. that that's, that's the foundational piece of like 
so much of the systemic racism in our culture is linked to that one line. And you highlight that so frequently. And I appreciate that because I do think uh, that has created a whole prison industrial complex, like, because it just, it just trans, I mean, obviously Michelle Alexander does a great job of outlining this in the new Jim Crow. And there's, there's the 13th, which is, you know, on Netflix, the documentary, but I think you do a good job of also showing how that particular policy and that particular amendment, like really while we celebrate it so much, there's also so much wrong with it. And I think that's important for us to maybe consider is like so much of what we've been taught to celebrate does have uh, written into it or baked into it exceptions or ways in which it can be utilized to undercut justice and and working toward justice. The two-party system is a big part of that. I think it's so interesting. I can walk into any store now to like, I'll go buy my kid's toothpaste and I look at the shelf and I'm like, wow, there's like a hundred options here for what kind of toothpaste my kids are going to use. But then I come to the importance of a presidential candidate and I've pretty much got two options, at least two popular options. And it's like in our life, we have so many choices when you pretty much in anything in our life, but yet this is the one thing that has not evolved to give us more choices that are, you know, legitimate, you know, yeah. contenders in the sense of like, I've, know, yeah, I've come to learn that the Republicans are afraid of people voting and the Democrats are terrified of people running. <laughs> That's an interesting way to put it. Yeah, the Democrats are they're, they're terrified, and especially this year with Joe Biden being one of the least inspiring candidates they run in decades. They're terrified of him having any competition. The, the Republicans are working hard to keep people from going to the polls. And the Democrats are working hard to keep people from actually running and, and being able to provide competition to the two-party system. Mm. Well, good deal. I think we spent a little more than two minutes on that question, but it was all good content. So you, <laughs> you, you, you continue to answer however you want. Um, what steps will you take to combat climate change? Yeah, one of the things we have to do with climate change is we have to decenter the economy. Right now, we have Republicans who are bragging, literally, just a few months ago, that they, bro- they built the strongest economy our nation has ever seen. And they did it while completely destroying or disregarding the environment. Mm. Meanwhile, we have the Democrats who are saying we can have a prosperous economy while we save the environment. So, just to give you some context, one of the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement was to reach a 50% reduction in carbon output by 2030 and to get down to to, to carbon neutral by 2050. So in the last six months, when the world has shut down at an unprecedented rate, manufacturing's down, travel's down, commuting's down, we have factories have been shut. I mean, literally, we have shut down at a global level. And our carbon output in the last six months has decreased by a mere 17%. Wow. 17%. Not even half of the way we need to get to 50% by the end of the decade. So can you imagine how painful it's going to be to get to 50%? And yet we have both parties centering the economy, telling people they can continue to prosper. The, the U.S. lifestyle 
is not sustainable. We are 5% of the world's population and we consume 25 to 30% of the world's renewable resources. If the entire world consumed like we did, the world would be out of renewable resources on an annual basis by April. The American lifestyle is not sustainable and we have to begin to change it, which means we have to begin to curb our consumption. Mm. Just converting to green energy is not going to get us there. We need to actually consume less and be more be more responsible with our consumption. And so this is where I'm telling people that we need to decenter our economy. And I, I, I cannot promise people, right? So if, if you thought, and these last six months have been hard, our economy, unemployment, income insecurity, rent insecurity, food insecurity. I mean, we are, we are having, we are seeing how fragile our economy actually is. This pandemic has exposed it. Yeah. Well, the, the disruption from this pandemic is a mere drop in the bucket compared to the disruption that's waiting for us as the, as the environment begins to collapse. Hmm. And so if we thought the last six months was painful, just wait until the environment begins to collapse. I mean, it, it, this is, and so we need, to, we need to prepare our citizens of, yeah, we cannot have the expectation that we're going to be able to prosper the way Americans have grown accustomed to prospering while we save the environment. And yet both parties are promising, they're centering the economy and they're promising prosperity. And I'm trying to say, no, we, we're not gonna leave anyone behind. We need to prepare for that, but we need to be ready to make some tough choices. And the, the great thing about humans is humans are incredibly resilient. Yeah. Like we, people can adapt, they can change, they can do things they never thought they'd be able to do, but they have to be prepared for it. One of the challenges we have with this pandemic is the way our leaders have been walking us through this, and this is both Democrats and Republicans, is they've been taking the short game, four to six weeks, right? Mm -hmm. If we can just, we'll be back to normal in four to six weeks. If we can just shut down this place over here or do that over there, we'll be okay in four to six weeks, right? Joe Biden didn't commit to not accepting the nomination in person until about two and a half weeks ago. Right? Two and a half weeks ago, he was still considering having an in-person convention. Yeah. My campaign gave up all of our public campaigning months ago and have had no expectation that we we're going to do this. And so, and so if we could imagine with all of the, the challenges families are facing right now as schools who have been holding off saying, we don't know if we're going to have in-person or online learning this fall. We don't know how we're going to do it yet. We'll let you know. And literally in the past month, most schools have been acknowledging, okay, we're going to do online learning. And the schools that haven't started for a few weeks in person, <laughs> and then they had to close because yeah. they're like, oh yeah, we have a pandemic again. That's right. We, there's no vaccine yet. And so imagine if as a nation, last March and April, we actually begin preparing and training our teachers and our parents and getting resources in place to have online learning at least through the end of the calendar year, if not through the spring semester as well of 2021.
imagine how much better prepared we would be right now if instead of taking a four to six week frame set of, well, let's just get through the next six weeks and then we'll see where we're at. And instead just acknowledge, yeah, this is gonna be hard. We're gonna prepare for the long game until we have a vaccine and then we'll just be ready for that. Well, this is the same thing we have to do with the climate. If we can actually prepare for the long game and prepare people ahead of time of, yeah, this is not gonna be easy. We, we're gonna to have to make some tough choices, but if we keep telling them, oh, you can still prosper, you can still be wealthy, you can still have everything you want, we just have to make a small adjustment here and then do something different over here. When it comes to actually making these tough choices, people won't be prepared to make them. Yeah. And neither Donald Trump nor Joe Biden are interested in preparing people to make tough choices. They both are promising prosperity, which, I have no confidence we're going to be able to do as we deal with the climate. So I would say we have to decenter the economy and actually focus on the environment so that we can have an environment to live in for the next several thousand years. Yeah, that's, that's a really good answer. So you say in there that we need to, we're, we're going to likely have to make sacrifices and live a little simpler than we've lived in the sense of what we consume, which is likely going to mean we're going to either, we, so much of what we produce or we even import is stuff that isn't essential, but is just stuff that we enjoy. We, we consume so much of the world's um, resources uh, as Americans for such a small population. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a statistic that I remember reading even when I was in high school. Um, when you think about this, I also think one of the, one of the interesting things is going to be when artificial intelligence really comes to a place of um, being able to I mean, not, not that it hasn't already uh, removed um, jobs from, you know, common workers, but that's going to continue to, to grow. And, and before long, um, manufacturing is largely going to be robotic or, or done by artificial intelligence, just based on a lot of the, the hypotheses yeah. that, are, that are out there. Um, what do you think about the inception of something like a universal basic income? And, and even as you, you know, I'm sure it's somewhat even connected to what you said about the economy, um, because I, I see a concern of um, joblessness growing as we as we import more. I mean, I even just think of Tesla. What a, what a crazy, amazing idea that that Elon Musk has about these semis that you know he's built but then like eventually they're going to be able to be um driverless yeah. and it's like so you're going to literally revolutionize an entire industry of trucking uh that that I don't know exactly the percent of the country it employs but I would I would guess it's significant and it's connected to so much oh yeah and you're now going to say you no longer have jobs because we have trucks that drive themselves. Um, now, yeah. look, there's a certain part of that innovation, innovative spirit that's amazing, right? Like that. Oh, that's we're going to have driverless cars. That's going to probably make our roads safer in a lot of ways. As you know, and just there's probably there's a lot of really good things that are going to come from that. I'm not saying the technology itself is bad, but I'm saying the implementation of it is going to have economic consequences on poor people and people who are even in, in middle income brackets. What do you think about the idea of something like a universal basic income in America? 
One of the things I really appreciate about Andrew Yang is I like how he thinks out of the box and he's anticipating some stuff that's not only happening, but is coming down in the future. I think UBI is a very innovative way of thinking about how do we address the problems while still learning how to embrace the technology that is allowing us to innovate and to do things better and more efficiently. So what I, you know, while I like his idea, I'm not, he hasn't yet convinced me he knows how to pay for it. But I think it's a very innovative way to think about it. And not that even he was saying this specifically, but so much of the, of the programs that whether it's the, the Medicare for all or the, the social programs that a lot of the Democratic candidates were advocating for, one of their big ways of paying for it is, well, let's tax billionaires. Mm. Um, and my, pro my challenge with that is in order to tax billionaires, you need an economy that continues to produce billionaires. And we don't need billionaires. I, I would love to have a very robust debate nationally about can you ethically and morally be a billionaire? I don't think you can. Um, you know, even Elizabeth Warren, when she really challenged, um, uh, why can't I remember his name right now? When uh, on, in the presidential debate. Um, what, it wasn't Bernie Sanders, was it? No. It was, no. Oh, Bloomberg. Thank you. Bloomberg. Michael Bloomberg. Bloomberg. Yeah, yeah. When, when he was challenging Michael Bloomberg and he was talking about his wealth and he said, I worked hard for my money. I earned it. Now, no, you didn't, Mr. Bloomberg. You don't earn a billion dollars. You can cheat your way to a billion dollars. You can, you can exploit your way to a billion dollars. You can take advantage of the taxpayers on your way to a billion dollars. You can't earn a billion dollars. No one's time, no one's labor, no one's effort is worth a billion dollars. You know, Bernie Sanders points out that if your corporation requires janitors to keep your warehouses clean or your, your production lines working, and you are paying your executives six and seven figures and you're paying your janitors $15, yet they're just as essential as your executives because your company can't run without them. You're not playing the, you're not being fair. You're not, you're not, you're exploiting. And so, and then Michael just proved that he doesn't earn a billion dollars when, you know, he, he hired most of his staff by telling them they would have jobs until November. And then soon after he dropped out of the race, he fired them all and gave them a free laptop. Um, you know, breaking wow. his promise of actually keeping them employed or, or paying their salaries through the end of the campaign. Yeah, that's how you get a billion dollars, Mr. Bloomberg, is you exploit people, you lie to them, you don't, you don't treat them fairly. That's the way you get a billion dollars. Thank you for proving our point. And so what we need is we need an economy that doesn't create such disparity in income. Hmm. And the problem with allowing people to earn a billion dollars and then taxing them is they feel like you're taking something that they've earned. So they feel very benevolent in paying their taxes of like, I'm somehow better because I'm paying more taxes than you because I've earned more money than you because I work harder than you do, blah, 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 blah. And so rather than allowing people to earn their billions and then just taxing them higher, I would rather make it much, much harder to earn a billion dollars. I would rather actually we have an economy that pays people not only a living wage, but for their contribution to this entire system. 
And so, like we see this so clearly today, where we have these workers that we have learned are essential, essential workers. And again, they're not CEOs, they're not executives, they're not well-placed admins. Our essential workers are delivery car drivers and um, grocery store clerks and you know, people working in, in the service industries. We've learned in the past six months, these are our essential workers, along with our nurses and our doctors and our teachers and these people who most of them are at the lower end of the, of the earning wage, of the earning um, uh, of, of what they earn. Yeah, yeah. And so we need, if we're going to call them essential, we need to pay them like they're essential yeah. instead of like they're, like they're disposable mm-hmm. or expendable. And so this is where we have to completely rethink the way we do things. And I would actually encourage that we have a really robust debate nationally about what does it mean to incorporate because when you incorporate, you protect yourself from liability. That's what allows you, I mean, that, that's one of the reasons you know, why you, you protect the individual from liability when you incorporate. So what that does is it allows people like Donald Trump to take their dad's money and incorporate into a business and then to drive that business into the ground, losing people's jobs, playing with their security of their careers and their incomes, and then you walk away with pocketing several million dollars or even more. You know, right now we have a lot of companies going bankrupt, a lot of corporations going bankrupt, and they're paying their executives six figures to keep them during, <laughs> while, the, while the, the corporation's being driven into the ground. And I would say, not that I want to I leave these people penniless, but say whatever money you bring into the corporation, whether it's whether you money you had before, whatever you had before is fine. But if you come into a corporation and you are able to to benefit greatly, not just through earning a, a, a decent salary, but through an exorbitant pay rate of millions of dollars or tons of investments in stops auctions and hundreds of millions of dollars, and then you leave the corporation and the corporation goes on to fail. I think you need to be held liable for that. And some of the way you've enriched yourself from that corporation should be open to liability because the corporation is now failing while, even from the time while you were there. Yeah. And so again, we need to rethink what does it mean to incorporate and how are we protecting people and, and what kind of liability do corporate executives and, and um, you know, leaders within those corporations, what kind of protections do they have and what is not protected? And I think we need to change that, again, so that corporations can behave more ethically um, and actually have some, some skin in the game so that they're not willing to be so risky. It's easy to risk when it's other people's monies and other people's jobs that you're risking. Mm. Um, you don't need courage to do that. Yeah. You need courage to, to, to risk your own. And so we need to have these executives have some of their own skin in the game. And actually, if they can enrich themselves from the corporation, then how they enrich themselves should be able to be clawed back if and when the corporation fails. No, that's good. That's, I mean, I think what you're saying is there's universal basic income may be something to consider but there's a larger narrative conversation we have to have about the structures that play within our economy 
in the 21st yeah. century and how the, the wealth gap that is, um, is a reality and it's yeah. only, it's only growing. Right. I mean, historically yeah. speaking, that gap is only getting bigger and, um, and we have to consider like how, how that creates the, the systemic problems yeah. that creates right within a society, um, universal basic income, it may solve some of that in the sense of like, it may allow people to have a living wage, but it, it's likely going to be challenged by our own structures and systems eventually. Right. Yeah. Eventually, well, and so, and so, and so, and again, if, if you have, if you only have a universal basic income, which means you now have people who are they're they're living, right. They're, they're able to, to pay rent and to buy groceries and, do other smaller jobs or whatever, but then you have this oligarchy, this other ruling class, this other group of people who's making, you know, and just if you look at it now with what's happened to our economy in the last six months, right? The stock market has more than recovered and our billionaires have added billions to their fortune in the last six months alone. Meanwhile, main street, small business owners and people working for those businesses, don't even know how to pay rent. Don't even know how they're going to put groceries on the table. Don't even know how they're going to, they're going to pay for an unexpected expense coming up. And, and so we need to find a way to make the, the livelihood of both those groups much more intertwined. Right now, there is almost a complete disconnect yeah. from Wall Street and Main Street. And we need to help Wall Street understand that Main Street is not expendable and you cannot ethically and morally enrich yourself while your fellow citizens are literally going bankrupt and starving and living on the streets. Yeah. All right. I'll get you out of here on this last question because I know we're a little bit over time here. Um, this is a long-winded question, so I'm going to edit it a little bit as I, as I read it to you, but it was submitted by... Uh, an individual listens to the podcast. Uh, in order for a common people to be united, they must have a super narrative, an ideal or value system higher than themselves to which they can appeal and agree. Historically, America was united largely by its homogeneous values. And then he kind of goes on to explain culture, religion, morality, love of country, and, um, and goes on. And then I, I, I won't continue. It's like a paragraph long, but the question, and I think this is really relevant to you as a person, but also you as a presidential candidate, uh, I would just love to know your thoughts on this. Can we still still appeal to our historical values or something new? Um, and like, what is the new, I guess, super narrative? Because I, I do think one of the interesting things I've learned as a pastor um, is that when I'm bringing something, a new idea to people, um, I can bring the data that says this is a problem and we need to fix it. And like, here's, here's the data and how we fix it. But when you can bring a story and a narrative to something, it, it unites people. It brings people together. Um, I'm not saying America's super narrative through history has been healthy or good, um, but it certainly has been something that has provided a sense of unity. Um, not, <laughs> Not for all people. I'm going to be very clear on, on that. But I guess I'm trying to figure out what do you think about 
how we actually go about uniting people and what narrative that is, because it's, it's really easy to deconstruct um, stuff, yeah. but it's hard to rebuild. And, and I just, maybe this is a good question to close on because I think so much of your candidacy and, and even life is, is, is something that is seeking to deconstruct, but rebuild something more substantive. Yeah, one of the quotes I use most frequently was actually used by George Erasmus, um, who is a Diné elder from uh, one of the tribes up in Canada. And he said, where common memory is lacking, where people don't share in the same past, there can be no real community. Mm. If you want to build community, he said, you have to start by creating common memory. I love that quote. I think it gets to the heart of our nation's problems, especially with race, as well as gender and class, which is we don't have a common memory. We have a white majority that remembers a mythological history of discovery and expansion, opportunity and exceptionalism. And we have communities of color, we have women, LGBTQ, IA2S+, we have other marginalized communities that have the lived experience of stolen lands and broken treaties, of slavery and Jim Crow laws, of boarding schools and Indian massacres, of internment camps, segregation, mass incarceration, families being ripped apart at our borders, and there's no common memory. Hmm. And there's no point in our history where you can look back and say across these racial and, and economic lines and gender lines, we've ever had healthy community. We haven't. Even when people look back and say, well, 40, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, Congress was much more was much less partisan. People could work across the aisle and people could, could, you know, they could compromise on things. Well, 40, 50, 60 years ago, Congress was primarily a bunch of white landowning men who all agreed on racism, sexism, and white supremacy. So their policy differences weren't that big of a deal. So they could compromise more. They, yes, they had some robust debates, but they all had, they were, there was it was very homogeneous and they they were very very um had similar values for their own superiority where congress has lost its ability to compromise is as more women people of color lgbtq have taken their places around the table now suddenly congress can't compromise because it, it doesn't have a common memory. You know, one of the things, even just, even when I look back, I did, did, did this just a few weeks ago when I was looking at our leadership of Congress, right? We're, right now, our Congress, its dysfunction is so severe that in the midst of a global pandemic with tens of millions of, of Americans unemployed or underemployed, our Congress cannot even decide and does it want to extend unemployment benefits? This is how dysfunctional we are, right? In the midst of the worst economic downturn in a century, Congress can't even decide if they want to extend unemployment benefits. Why is that? Well, I looked at the leadership of our Congress, both houses, 10 of them. Seven of them have been in Congress since the 1990s or earlier, right? Mm. They've been in Congress for over 20 years, meaning they've gone through the Great Recession. They've gone through numerous government shutdowns. They've gone through this pandemic. And never once have they felt insecure about their income. 
Hmm. Never once have they, have they worried about where they're going to have a place to sleep at night or have money to put food on the table the next day. Even when the, there was a government shutdown and they were forcing TSA workers to work without pay, they were still getting paid. Yeah. And so this whole, what they read in the papers and what they, what they see in their neighborhoods, that's not touching them personally. Mm. They don't have a common memory. They they're so out of touch with the American, the average American family right now. This is why it's not a priority. And this is why at the end of the day, they've all become political pundits. They don't really care about passing this legislation. They just want to make sure that we know it wasn't their fault. Mm. That's the main thing they're concerned about. And so that's just a, a microchasm of 500 years of history here in Turtle Island, 250 years of history as a nation where we don't have a common memory. And we have a white majority that remembers this. It's not even an accurate history. It's a mythological history. And they, they have very little experience with people of color and other people from the margins. What would you say is and a so, good common? What would you say is a good common memory for us to maybe adopt or consider? Well, well, or how do we? This is my book. This yeah. is my book. On selling truth lays out this history of what our nation actually did, what we're built on, and how we've treated people. One of the things I call for, one of the primary planks of my platform, is the United States of America needs a national dialogue on race, gender, and class. A conversation I would put on par with the truth and the reconciliation commissions that happened in South Africa, in Rwanda, and in Canada. I wouldn't call ours reconciliation, though, because it gives, that implies there was a previous harmony. I would call ours truth and conciliation. Mm -hmm. And this is what we need. We need to actually be able to hear the stories of what's happened. And the stories are horrific. Abraham Lincoln was a blatant white supremacist and actually one of our most genocidal presidents as he cleared the states of Minnesota, Colorado, and New Mexico of Native peoples to make way for the Transcontinental Railway. He was one of our most genocidal presidents. Mm. We just passed the 75th anniversary of the bombing of Japan and especially the nuclear bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Robert McNamara, who was, who was serving under General LeMay, as an analyst during, in the Pacific theater during World War II. He was helping plan and doing the analyzing for some of these bombing raids. And General LeMay said to him, if we lose this war, we will be tried as war criminals. And McNamara in his documentary, The Fog of War, agreed. And so we were, we were behaving as war criminals. This is the common memory we don't have. This is the common, we don't, we don't know our own history. We don't know how bad the genocide and enslavement was. And this is why, you know, most people don't even know slavery is still legal in the United States. And so this is where we have to be able to teach our history for what it truly is. We have to create this common memory so that we can begin to lay a foundation for a healthier community. Because right now, it's been 250 years since we, we signed the Constitution 
our road to Declaration of Independence. And we've ne we haven't had that community ever within this country. And so this is, this is one of the primary goals of my campaign. When I announced my campaign in the video um, in May of, of 2019, we have a nine-minute video. It's on our website at marktrials2020.com. And I frame my campaign as an 18-month journey of teaching and understanding American history, of creating, building this common memory so that we can actually find a way to have healthier community, so that we can do something. You know, if Donald Trump is saying he wants to make America great again, and Joe Biden and the Democrats are saying they want to restore the soul of America, I want to do something we've actually never done before. I want to do something completely brand new. I want to build a nation where for the very first time, we the people might actually mean all the people. Mm. We've never done that before. That's my vision. That's my goal. And I want to do it through creating this common. I'm not trying to oppress white people. I'm not trying to, to shame them. I am trying to decenter white people, which is going to feel oppressive to them because when you're used to being in the center, it feels oppressive to be, to be moved to the margins. But I'm not trying to oppress them. I'm trying to decenter them so that we can create this common memory and have healthier community, have a nation where we the people actually means all the people. That's so good, Mark. Thank you so much for being on Beyond Boundaries. And I'm, I'm really uh, encouraging people to go follow you on uh, Facebook, all your platforms, to go to your website, watch that video. It'll be linked in the show notes. So you can just, wherever you're listening to this, whether it's uh, Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, it'll be right there in the description. You can click right on it and watch the video. And also just to follow you, because I think you've been putting out some really good content in reaction to what we're seeing. And one of the things I've really appreciated um, is that you've, you've critiqued both sides. And I think, you know, that's, that's really important is like whatever, whether you're a conservative or progressive listening to this, like um, there's going to be some things that sting and make you kind of be like, whoa, hold on. How do I, how do I process that? Which I think is good because we need to have that critical thinking mechanism, which I, I sense like your candidacy just really has a lot of critical thinking. And so I'm, I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful for your voice. And I, I look forward to seeing um, you more in the future and, and, and your ideas as we continue this journey toward, uh, you know, the, who the president will be beyond 2020. So thank you for your time today. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Justin. Uh, thank you for the chance to be on your show. Uh, please, anyone who's listening, check out our website, markcharles2020.com. You can find us also on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter. We even have a TikTok channel. Um, oh, we have a YouTube TikTok, channel. Nice. So <laughs> yeah, we're, we don't have as much content there as we want yet. I'm hoping in the next few weeks we'll get some more content up there. But yeah, we're, we're trying to be active on as many of these platforms as we can. So. You got to you got to you got to do some TikTok dances. That's how you get that's how you get everybody in. If you do some <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if that's going to help. But we, I, I, there's a point I have to realize I'm not a Gen Z person. So I have to acknowledge I'm completely Gen X and I will um, only hurt myself if I try to behave as, as a Gen Z on TikTok. One, one question I did just as, as, we, as we head out, you're on the ballot in most states or is there a place where people can find out if you're no, on the ballot? No, so or, we or? will be on the ballot right now, maybe only in the state of Colorado, but we are hoping that we 
we are working for write-in access right in a access. number of states. So in Colorado, we are definitely on the ballot. We just found out today that we will not be on the ballot in Vermont, but we will have write-in access in Vermont. Okay. And um, there's about 12 states, I believe, that people will not be able to vote for us in, but we're hoping for about 36, 35, 36 states, we will have write-in access, meaning people will be able to write my name in. Okay. And again, the thing I'm telling people is, yeah, if you want this kind of change, if you want systemic change, it's rarely going to come in a box you can check. Mm. It's going to come from having, you're going to have to go outside the two-party system and actually write a name in. And so, you know, and because of not only has it been hard just because of we're a third party and I'm, you know, and we're, we're running on some more challenging issues, but it's also been hard because of the pandemic and yeah. we've refused to break social distancing. So we have done no in-person campaigning, which includes petitioning. Um, we only tried to petition in states where we could do it electronically, which was um, challenging in and of itself. And so the bulk of the way people, people will be able to vote for us is uh, by writing our name in. If you go to our website at markcharles2020.com and click on ballot access, um, okay. you can find a list of all 50 states. And there you can click on your state and find out what our ballot access plan for your state is and where we're at and what we need to do in the future. A lot of what we're trying to do right now is get electors signed up. Because even when we have write-in access, we still need electors to vote for us in the Electoral College, which is what will actually get us elected as president. So, Gotcha. Well, thank you so much, Mark. Have a great rest of your day. All right. Thank you. You have a good weekend. Take care. Thank you for joining me today on the Beyond Boundaries podcast. If you want to learn more about Mark, just check the show notes. I have all kinds of links there for you. And also, if you want to support the Beyond Boundaries podcast, you can go to our Patreon page. And uh, that's also in the uh, show notes. I hope you share this uh, episode with your friends. Like, rate, subscribe, review, do all the things. It really does make a difference. Thank you for being with us today. May you go and live a life that is beyond boundaries, giving others love, exploring new ideas, and championing belonging.